Welcome to Brandon Avats. We have, I think, our most um, famous guest on the show because he's been on so many times, Aaron Fasser, a really good friend of the show. We've talked about a huge range of topics with Aaron, and we're going uh, into even more interesting, unusual territory. We're going to be talking about nuclear war. Aaron, take it away. Imagine the scenario. You're the president of a country, and one day you're sitting in the equivalent of the Oval Office, and you get word that a neighboring state is massing its tanks and its forces on the border of your country. And all the diplomatic channels and all the clandestine services indicate that this nation, this neighboring state is preparing for a belligerent and bellicose war. So in other words, it's categorically a war of, of aggression, right? There's, it's completely unprovoked. They're coming to take your country. Right, to take it over, to subjugate your people, to wage a blatant war of aggression. And the tanks are massing on the border. So it's imminent, but not yet happening. You've got the man there with the nuclear football, with the codes for the nuclear weapons. Are you permitted? to use a nuclear weapon in those circumstances in anticipatory self-defense, for example? Or are you forced to figure out some other way to deal with the problem? In other words, the question is, from both a uh, legal and moral perspective, would it be permissible in those sorts of circumstances, for example, where the very survival of your country, who you as the uh, head of the executive is sworn to protect I mean, millions of people, would it be permissible for you to authorize the use of a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons in that circumstance to launch an attack on those massing forces and potentially in doing so save your country? So that's the thought experiment. And it becomes particularly uh, poignant when you imagine yourself having the power and the opportunity to do that. So as someone who's not a president of a country, I would try to form intuitions about this from my own personal case, right? So imagine I'm the head of a household and I've got a weapon at hand that can prevent someone from breaking through my front door and potentially really harming the people in my household. Am I permitted to use it preemptively to stop them from, from coming into my household and harming us? Is that the same question? In other words, are the answers that you will have in the nuclear case the same answers as you'll have in the personal case or rather in the country case the same as the personal case? Well, I think they're not necessarily the same answers, but I think for many people when they think about self-defense in the, for, in the context of an international armed conflict, which is what, this, what we're exploring here, it's natural to turn to our moral and legal principles that we would bring to bear in uh, cases of individual what you're talking about is individual interpersonal self-defense. And that is essentially what, when we look at the legal principles that have um, evolved over the course of international legal history, we find that the principles that, are, that govern the resort to uh, self-defense track in many respects, the principles, the moral and legal principles we would want to appeal to in interpersonal self-defense. So to give an example, at the international law level, we think there's a, there are principles that prohibit the use of force other than in cases of self-defense. Now, this tracks a very strong moral sense that we have is that the use of self-defense should be a last resort. It's only when in the face of an armed attack that one is entitled to use force oneself, right? So that, and that tracks our moral sense and our moral principles that it's only in very certain circumstances that we should be or we ought to be resorting to force. And one of those we recognize at a, a domestic legal level, but even antecedently at a moral level is when we're involved in instances of private self-defense. We think that those are circumstances where morality would dictate, I ought to be allowed to protect myself or the ones I love. And so we see that moral grounding in the international legal law principles, which are codified in most rigorously in the United Nations Charter, 
which deals with the legal principles in the first instance, amongst other things, with the right of a nation state to defend itself. And the particular article is Article 51 in the United Nations Charter, which secures from a legal perspective, the right of, of a state to protect itself in the event of an armed attack. So it's very important that it be an armed attack. It's got to be the threat of violence that justifies the use of force in, in cases of self-defense. And we think that's the same at the, at the level of individuals as well. So a couple of ways in which it seems to come apart, the one we might think about as the proportionality. So in other words, if you've got the intruder coming into your home unarmed, and there's a certain kind of harm that could be perpetrated by this person, they could beat you up, but they maybe they could kill you with your, with your bare hands. But the amount of force you could use to ward off the attack, we might think might be limited. You might think that before you shoot this person in the head, you need to fire off a warning shot. Um, you've got to take some steps before you kill them. The other thing is that if you did use a firearm, maybe the kind of firearm you use matters. So if you're shooting with your 9mm pistol, your chances of just killing this person are very different from taking out your Gatling gun. And the thing about a nuclear weapon is that it's not a very precise kind of weapon. So it might be incredibly effective at warding off this threat that you have. In other words, the tanks are lined up on your border. They're about to come and start invading your cities, killing your citizens, taking over your courts. And if you drop that nuclear bomb on their side, in all likelihood, that's going to end the war straight away. But yeah. a lot of innocent civilians on their side are going to die. And not just those civilians, but maybe for generations to come, you're going to have this nuclear impact, this fallout. And so the question is, can you justify the killing of those innocent people for the sake of your citizens? Do you owe those non-citizens of your state anything and say, I was elected by my citizens and these people are trying to kill them. Why do I owe these other people some kind of obligation to protect their lives? Those are moral concerns that the international legal order takes into account in trying to answer this sort of question. And it was those sorts of concerns that the International Court of Justice, in its legal opinion, its advisory opinion, which it gave on the legal permissibility of the threat or use of nuclear weapons, these are the sorts of principles it appealed to. Now, it, it clothed these principles in legal garb, right? So it spoke about these principles as principles of law. But underneath these principles, which we will go through now, and you've already gestured towards some of them, are, are, are much more general and deeper moral principles. So to just set the stage uh, for this question, international ju law jurists distinguish between two different bodies of law that govern two different things, but they're interrelated. And they have these bodies of law have profound implications for how we answer this question about the permissibility of the use of nuclear weapons. So on the one hand, you've got what lawyers call jus ad bellum, which is Latin for the law of, of war, or the ability to go to war in the first place, to use force in the first place. And then there's jus in bello, which is the law of armed conflict, or the law that governs the conduct of hostilities once they've begun. So you've got the law that governs when you are entitled to use force in, in, in an armed conflict, and what you can do once an armed conflict has legitimately started. And there are different requirements that have developed to articulate and give effect to these, these two bodies of law. So for example, we've already touched on when you might be able to go to war, and that is in the case of self-defense. And there the principles are very natural principles, right? There's got to be an armed attack. It's got to be imminent or actually happening. It's, it can't be an exiguous or small scale armed attack. It's got to have some, there's a qualitative dimension to it. So it's got to be sufficiently serious. If one soldier comes across your border, you can't just retaliate and invade their country. And there's got to be a level of proportionality, right? So it's got to be the, re the response to an invasion, for example, or an attack on your country has to be proportionate and necessary solely to the extent of repelling the attack. So it's, you've got, it's simply the use of force is simply to repel the attack. So those are the sorts of principles that govern the resort to force. And we can see that tracks exactly with our moral sensibilities about private defense, right? We think that if, if you're attacked, you should be able to defend yourself. It's got to be an armed attack on you, right? So if somebody just insults you, you can't just go punch them in the face. If they attack you, you can use proportionate force to repel the attack, but it can't become retributive. And we think that there are good moral reasons for that because we're trying to avoid violence as far as possible. And the resort to violence should always be a last resort. 
So that's those principles track um, the use ad bellum, the use ad bellum principles. But we might also think that even if you resort to force lawfully on the international proscenium, how are those hostilities conducted, right? And that's the preserve of use in below. And what you find at the core of the use in below principles are essentially three pillars, which are three moral pillars in my view. And that is three distinct principles that interact together to give basically the, the foundation of international humanitarian law. And I'll, I'll give these principles now and we can unpack them. And then you can start to see how the use of nuclear weapons might violate them or might potentially in certain circumstances be in accordance with them. So we've got this idea, both morally and legally, that we should distinguish between combatants and non-combatants, right? There's a moral and legal imperative to only if we're involved in an armed conflict to target legitimate military objectives, right? Civilians should, as far as possible, not be targeted. And this is what's known as the principle of discrimination, right? Related to that is the principle of limitation, which basically says that war is horrific, right? We all agree war is horrific and it's violent and it's chaotic. But in conducting a war, we don't have free reign or we ought not to have free reign to resort to any weapon we choose, right? There are limitations to how, to, to the armaments we bring to bear in achieving those legitimate military objectives. So we have to discriminate on the one hand between combatants and lawful military objectives, non-combatants and combatants. The weapons we bring to bear, we might also think that there are limitations there. And related to that is what's known as the principle of humanity, which is that we should, as far as possible, ameliorate rather than exacerbate the suffering of combatants, right? So even if we are killing, and this, this, can, sound, this can sound difficult for many people to understand, I mean, in war, aren't you trying to kill as many as possible in the most gruesome way possible? The principle of humanity says, no, even when you're waging war, we should, as far as possible, try to ameliorate suffering rather than exacerbate it. And these principles are, are legal principles, but you can see at their core, they actually express very deep moral commitments we have to others, even in our interpersonal lives and even in the context of something like self-defense. So when you look at those principles and you start thinking to yourself, nuclear weapons, in what way, shape or form could they be utilized that would comply with these principles or not comply with these principles? And that's where the, the real crux and the real dilemma starts to emerge. Everything you've described seems deontological. So these are like principles that might even conflict with one another. As the resident utilitarian in the room, I want to say, hold on, isn't this a simple question? Will my pressing the button cause more suffering than if I don't press the button? And isn't that just the answer? Are these principles supposed to be answers to that question? Or are these principles supposed to compete with the answer to that question or override it? I think they compete. And I think that the first thing to say merely as a, at the level of description is that the positive legal stand, stance is fundamentally deontic. The idea is that not, you can't sacrifice everything for the sake of consequences. There are constraints, deontic constraints on the way you wage war. And those constraints are often going to be intentioned with, for example, some combatants' military objectives. In other words, these act as constraints. So for example, if there would be a military objective that might clinch the war for you, for your side, but it would involve, for example, the deaths of 100,000 or millions of civilians, right? Those are going to be constraints at the level of international law, deontic constraints that will prevent you in that sense, I mean, there was, I mean, in some sense, people do this all, people, what people do all the time is they disregard these principles all the time. We're talking about what you ought to do. So these are constraints that would prevent you from just in a kind of laissez-faire way, pursuing the maximum utility for your side. So I think we just have to acknowledge that the current state of play is that the world is generally on a deontic path when it comes to these principles. They're not, the world is not thinking in 
utilitarian, strictly utilitarian or consequentialist um, terms. Okay, but hold on. So the utilitarian wouldn't just go and kill 100,000 people if they're not on my side because the utilit- so utilitarianism is the view that an action is righteous in so far as it benefits society as a whole. Now, the question is how we define society. So yeah. if, if I'd only define society as my society, so it's my side of the border, then I can understand how, you know, killing off the entire enemy is fine. But the utilitarian, I think, more plausible version of utilitarianism is to include all of humanity and perhaps all suffering beings capable of suffering or sentient beings in the society. And so the utilitarian has to balance those lives. And I, I understand that you're saying the state of affairs, the state of play is that the world is looking at these issues from a deontic perspective, but I think that's just wrong, right? So what I'm saying is just think about what that means. If you're saying that's the way to go, then you're saying even if your actions will result in net harm across the world or across both societies that are being affected here or both countries that are being affected, you should do it or not do it anyway based on the deontic principles, even if it results in net harm. And that seems weird to me, right? Surely your, your principles should just fall away if net harm or net, net suffering is shown to contradict the outcome that these principles give you. What I think it comes down to is what you locate intrinsic value in, because ultimately what the consequentialist is doing is he's locating the intrinsic value. It's completely asymmetrical. It's located entirely in the consequences. And obviously, as a deontologist would say that there are other things of intrinsic value. So it's in consequences matter, but they're not all that matter. It actually matters. And, and we have very strong moral intuitions about this. It matters how those consequences are brought about. And sometimes it, it can matter even more how we're doing, even if we don't reach those consequences, those, those consequences that, that we would think of as having the greater net utility. And I think that's what's motivating many of the legal principles. They're certainly informed by deontic considerations. I mean, there's something particularly abhorrent to our human sensibilities when we think of a nation state saying, I can win this war. I'm, cal- I'm doing this crude, this calculus of lives lost versus lives gained. But as part of the lives lost, I'm going to, it's going to entail the deaths of 50,000 civilians. That is to say, people who are not engaged themselves in armed conflict. And there's something in us that recoils morally at the thought of that. And what I think the legal, these legal principles or these moral principles are capturing is precisely that that abhorrence we have with the idea of killing non-combatants, say, or causing unnecessary suffering in the achievement of an objective. We really do think that it matters how our fellow human beings suffer or don't suffer. We think it matters whether we kill innocent people or not. And we think that matters, we think that matters not just like by the by, we think that it fundamentally matters. And so those things constrain our projects in other areas of our life. And to the extent that these principles are deontic, as I've said, they constrain the way in which we engage in the conduct of hostilities. But of course, what makes this question that we're exploring uh, particularly poignant is because of the nature of the weapon involved, right? I mean, no anybody who's even had done a cursory glance at what nuclear weapons are capable of can very quickly see that all of these principles that I've just articulated are are undermined through the use of nuclear weapons, right? So to just go through the list, we can think even historically of a nuclear weapon that was dropped, the nuclear weapons that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? There was clearly, it clearly obliterates, no pun intended, the distinction between combatants and non-combatants, right? It's It's not a weapon that will in and of itself say, oh, this person's engaged in hostilities against the country and this person is just a civilian picking picking rice in a paddy somewhere. So it, it completely destroys and undermines that, that principle. We think also that because of the effects of nuclear weapons, we can think of things like anybody who's seen Chernobyl has seen, albeit in, in, in an HBO miniseries, the effects of acute radiation poisoning or acute radiation syndrome and what that does to the human body. And we think that violates 
as we might, many might think that violates the principle of humanity. It, it just is, it kills people, yes, but it kills them in the most, in one of the most horrific ways you can possibly imagine, at least for those who are not killed outright in the blast, you know, the people who languish after. And we think that these two things, this, this violation of the principle of humanity is so egregious and the violation of this principle of distinction is just so egregious that many people think that there's just no circumstance under which it could ever be legally and or morally permissible to use a nuclear weapon. If you take a utilitarian stance in war and you think that all lives matter equally, uh, you're an egalitarian utilitarian, you're going to wind up in a couple of strange situations. One of which might be that if the opponent that you find yourself facing is a totally militaristic opponent. In other words, every member of that society carries a weapon. So you can imagine the sort of Mongol hordes. And you can imagine your society as being one which is very peaceful, but technologically advanced. And so you've developed a way of ending wars through some kind of um, nuclear device. And you then now do this calculation. You say, if the Mongol hordes come in, they're going to kill 100,000 of my people. And we would then submit and these guys would rule. And there's 200,000 of the Mongol hordes. So if I push the button, I'm going to kill all of them, do the calculation. Well, I guess we should just let them come in and kill us. That seems like the right thing to do. It'll reduce suffering, less lives on the tally books. That yeah. seems like an absurd result to me. It seems like if you take a rights-based approach and you say the way in which the lives are ended matters. In other words, yeah. you keep up a distinction between active killing and failing to save, which utilitarians don't do because they're just counting points in the sky. You've got a good reason for explaining why it's okay to use force against these guys. Jason does hint at something, which is that it might be that the, the principles walk in lockstep a lot of the time. So in other words, it happens to be the case that having these kinds of principles is a very good way of reducing suffering generally. What's interesting, of course, is when they pull apart and then you have to decide what kind of moral theorist am I? And I mean, our, our law is generally built on a structure of rights but cares about consequence, knows that suffering matters, it tries to reduce it, it knows that flourishing matters and tries to enhance it. But there are going to be times when there's a clash between these principles. Undoubtedly. And I think that's the distinction between, for example, um, uh, an absolute deontologist and a moderate deontologist. And in the moral literature, there's often a distinction made between an absolute deontologist who, who will commit to the principles and to essentially becomes a kind of rule fetish, regardless of the consequences. But there's also a kind of moderate deontology, which says, look, consequences matter, but the consequences in order to override these deontic principles have to be sufficiently grave, right? So not just any old consequences count, even if it's, just, we have to look very carefully at when it is that the consequences override these constraints that would normally govern our behavior. So I think that's, and we see that, for example, in, in many legal jurisdictions, I think even in our, in, even in our jurisdiction, it, it, it's acknowledged in, for example, something like the South African Constitution, say, to just shift to a legal perspective, where we see we have all these rights that are granted in terms of the Constitution, in terms of the law, but those consequences, those rights are not absolute. They can be overridden in certain circumstances, and, what, and we will take consequences into account when thinking about whether they can be overridden or not. It's just that we won't um, allow any old consequences to, to override. And I think that's what's really motivating these sorts of legal principles when it comes, and these sorts of moral principles when it comes to the deontic structuring of international law. You earlier hinted at the case of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so here you have the use of nuclear weapons with the stated aim of ending a war. The war in Europe had ended, but Japan was still fighting America. And the view was that they would continue to fight Americans and that many Americans would lose their lives. That war continued and that the Japanese wouldn't surrender unless something very dramatic happened. And so the nuclear bombs were dropped and they were dropped on civilians, basically to instill terror, to have that state submit. And it worked after the second drop. I mean, the reason for the claimed reason for why they had to drop twice was that people were in, they couldn't believe the reports. It was such a dramatic moment that people just said, it, it cannot be that you could have done this. And so the war continued. And then when the second one happened, then people submitted. So maybe overall net, a lot of lives were saved, but a lot of innocent civilians were murdered. And really you using a, a tactic of fear to get people to submit. Now, the prohibitions that are in place, some of which are old prohibitions about what it's what you're allowed to do in a war. So, for example, we know that things like mustard gas were outlawed because they were a cruel thing to use. Do you think, one, that this was, let's say, illegal at the time, 
or immoral at the time, or could it be justified? It's a difficult question because, of course, from looking at it from a purely legal perspective, the answer is, from an international law perspective, very clear. What you're referring to are the Geneva and Hague Conventions, more specifically the Hague Conventions, which is a whole bunch of conventions which essentially seek to limit and give effect to that principle of limitation that I spoke about, that moral principle that we should that, that we don't just have free reign with the weapons we bring to wear against our fellow human being, right? There are weapons that are particularly egregious and cause such untold suffering that they actually strike at the core of who we are as a human being to witness it and to use these sorts of weapons. So you refer to mustard gas, for example, but there are certain armaments, for example, like there's certain conventions which prohibit the use of, of bullets that will explode in the body. They're specifically designed to cause the most amount of damage to an individual human person. So that when you get hit by them, they fragment in such a way as to rupture the most amount of vital organs possible. And the person bleeds to death in the most unbelievable agony. So these, and, so, and there's on any number of conventions, there's a multitude of conventions that, that, that deal with that. And we all think, most think that is a good thing that we don't have weapons that are of that sort on the battlefield, even when we wage war. So I think even now, if we had to do a do-over, we would come to that conclusion. Now, of course, like I was saying, from a legal perspective, these are treaties. So the reason they have legal import is because states have agreed to that. But you've also got to look at why did they agree? They agreed because of this moral consideration, because of this principle of limitation, because of things like the principle of humanity. That was what was driving their agreement to prohibit, in a legal sense, these sorts of weapons. And we see this move now with, with nuclear weapons as well. So, for example, recently, at the beginning of this year, the Treaty on the Prohibition on the Use of Nuclear Weapons came into just some, uh, just divert, moving a little bit away from, from the moral things, just to give you some, so your viewers also know the state of play from an, a, a law perspective. It's a treaty. So, in other words, it's only binding on states who actually sign and sign onto this treaty. And as of today, the last time I checked, I think it was about 82 states had signed the treaty, but only 52 had ratified. So only 52 are legally bound, but it was just enough to bring the treaty into effect. But of course, none of the people or none of the parties, state parties that signed are any of the, the, the states that have nuclear weapons or are suspected of having nuclear weapons. So the states that we would be most concerned about in the actual world are not party to, to this um, treaty. And this treaty is really important because it has a plenary prohibition against the use of nuclear weapons in all circumstances. If every nation state signed this treaty, for example, or ratified this treaty, you would have a plenary prohibition from a legal perspective on the use of nuclear weapons, even in cases of self-defense. Now, obviously, that we're not nearly at that stage yet, and we can only hope that more and more states would sign on to that, or at the very least that it ultimately becomes what lawyers call a customary international law principle, so that even it would become binding on states, even if they didn't sign the actual treaty. But that's where things are standing as a matter of positive law at the moment, which means that there's no real prohibition, there's no express prohibition anywhere in international law on the use of nuclear weapons in the way that you would have with mustard gas, for example, or those bullets that I was talking about, or any other number of uh, particular weapons. So as it stands right now, the only way to answer this question is to apply these general legal and moral principles. We can't point to a specific treaty and say, ah, we've all agreed that this is, is impermissible. So what's interesting is none of the reasons you guys have given have convinced me or even swayed me towards giving up my utilitarian reasons for engaging in or not engaging in nuclear warfare. I mean, Mark's counterexample of there's 200,000 in the Mongol horde, they're going to invade my country, there's 100,000 people in my country, so I should just let them in as opposed to nuking them. So I could kill all of them off with a nuke, or I could let them in, I must let them in because there's fewer people who'll die that way. Yeah. The utilitarian's not going to buy that, right? So the utilitarian doesn't only consider the number of people involved, he considers overall happiness. And the idea would be that if the Mongol horde come in, overall happiness will be reduced because the Mongol horde presumably has a poor lifestyle. What I think is you, we can come up with interesting counterexamples. Suppose there's a whole bunch of the Mongol horde civilian population who outnumbers your civilian population. They'd be very unhappy with the nuclear bomb being dropped. And let's, to make it even more challenging, you've got, as a matter of fact, people in your own society who are going to be very unhappy at the thought of dropping nuclear bombs on 
other people. So net unhappiness is going to result. In that circumstance, Mark's thought experiment goes through, then you should let them you should let them take over your country. And we think that there's something morally, that's a morally absurd conclusion. We think that if, if, I've got a, if I've got a moral right to anything, it's to defend myself. If there's anything that I'm entitled to do, it's to say, I, if I'm attacked, is to say, is to defend myself and repel my attacker, even if it means his death. And there's a very strong moral sense there that translates, I think, into the defense of one's defense of one's country. And I don't mean that in, in a kind of jingoistic or nationalistic way. I just mean that in many respects, defending your country is to defend yourself. It's to defend your family. It's to defend your friends. It's to defend your way of life and, and your very mode of being. And we think that's, that that is very morally important. And sometimes yeah. that can override these consequentialist considerations. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not going to be swayed by that because the issue isn't whether I think I'll be happier if the bomb isn't or is dropped, it's whether I will be. So but assume that they would, I mean, that you would be committed to the point that if more people would be unhappy with it, maybe because they're deontologists, you would have to allow the invasion to occur. The Mongolians are all utility monsters. So they just absolutely love subjugating people. It is the best. It is so much yeah, fun yeah. to invade and you're just so happy. You're the happiest Mongolian alive and you get to rape and you get to pillage. And like the other people, they're just, yeah, this is pretty shit. But the utility monsters here are really having a fantastic time. Do the calc. We've got to submit. Yeah. Great. I mean, I finally got you where I want you, right? Which is that you're going to have to specify the case so absurdly in order to justify performing the anti-consequentialist action that I'm going to bite the bullet at that point and say, hold on, if you're going to specify this specifically, surely you should go with the, the, utili with the choice that I'm suggesting. So what, what I'm trying to, as a utilitarian, I'm going to say, in general, it seems like you should do the consequentialist action. In other words, you should do the thing that results in the best consequences. You're going to have to specify the case so specifically where it's not the consequences that are playing a role there that those cases either would never happen or just aren't that important. How far do the consequences go? Because we, we, right now we're just talking about the happiness of the people involved, say, or the pain and suffering and pleasure of the people involved. But we know that nuclear weapons, for example, don't just have an effect on people now. They have an effect on the environment as well. There are existential risks with the use of nuclear weapons, especially in circumstances where one is using nuclear weapons as a nuclear state against another nuclear state, right? This was the, this is what the doctrine of deterrence and mutually assured destruction during the cold war was all about, right? Is that it, it created a situation where there was such an existential threat between the USSR and America, that nobody would dare use nuclear weapons, right? Because the existential risks were too great. So we could also imagine situations, we've also got to take into account the consequences on the environment. We've got to take into account the consequences of potentially people down the line, generations, future, generations later, and how they might be affected by the use of nuclear weapons now. And I think that the utilitarian or the consequentialist is going to have difficulties quantifying that. And unless we have some sense to, about quantifying those sorts of consequences, which seem very like very important consequences, the happiness of people down the line and their relationship to the environment, we're going to be we're, we're going to be very hard pressed in any given circumstance to say whether it is or is not permissible or not. Um, so that's that's a concern or a worry someone might have in adopting a consequentialist or utilitarian point of view. I mean, the utilitarian seems to be right on top of that problem, right? So the utilitarian, um, the utilitarians distinguish between long-term utilitarianism and short-term utilitarianism. So short-term utilitarians say all we should care about is the short-term outcomes of my action. Uh, long-term utilitarians say I should take into account the long-term effects or consequences of my action. Now you're saying the long-term consequences are very important, but it'd be very hard for me to quantify those. But it seems a lot easier for me to quantify those in my particular circumstance with my particular action, which is what the utilitarian is gonna try and do, than for you to generate a general principle ahead of time that will apply to all circumstances and all possible futures. Whatever problem I have trying to predict what those consequences will be as a utilitarian, 
are infinitely easier than you coming up with a deontic principle that will apply to all cases and all futures and all wars. It doesn't seem to be a specific problem for me, but if anything, it's a bigger problem for you as the deontologist. Deontologist isn't without his resources there, because of course the deontologist is, is not saying that consequences don't matter, though the moderate deontologist at least is not saying that in, in, in any sense. Sometimes we'll have to trade off different deontic principles against each other in order to resolve a problem. So he's not, it's not that deontologists aren't concerned about consequences and it's not that the principles can't in many cases be applied to solve the problem so i'm not sure that it's necessarily worse for the deontologist to resolve the dilemma but i think what you do find again when you actually look at how human beings have sought to resolve this problem and i think when uh, for any of your listeners who are also interested in the law is to read the icj's opinion because they grapple with all these principles and how to um, apply them. And the conclusion that they came to, I mean, this, this is now uh, the, the premier international court that governs disputes between states. I mean, it's the ICJ and some pretty bright legal people there. They couldn't say, for example, that applying these principles, that the use of nuclear weapons would be impermissible to cur or simpliciter, that there may be certain cases where an, the use of a nuclear weapon would be permissible. Right. And that dissatisfied. Many people were dissatisfied with their dispositif on that because it's, they wanted something much more clear cut. And I think, but I think ultimately that was the right answer. I think it is very context sensitive. I don't, and I think it's precisely embedded in the nature of these principles themselves. I mean, even a deontologist could say that there are certainly circumstances where um, we can come up with scenarios where the principle of distinction won't be an issue. Right, where we know that we're going to launch the nuclear device and there's no civilians in that area. We know, for example, that the, the nature of this nuclear device is low radiation. So it's almost all blast and none of the radiation afterwards. And it's concentrated and it's tactical and it's going to destroy a tank battalion. And we know that the environment is out in the desert somewhere. So it's not going to, the radioactive fallout is not going to fall on the civilian, nearby civilian population or go into an innocent person's country, right? That's something we haven't even spoken about yet, which is something that, that we have to think about as well. The principle of neutrality is that if I act in self-defense with a nuclear weapon and that affects a non-combatant country and starts killing their civilians with radioactive fallout or environmental damage, is that something that is permissible or not permissible? International law says on basis on the principle of neutrality, no. It's, it's not permissible. We have to keep the, the, the belligerence between the warring states as, as far as possible. So there are going to be circumstances where, at least in principle, now they may be very idiosyncratic circumstances and they may be very unorthodox circumstances where you could use a nuclear weapon and meet all of these principles, right? So you would have the right to self-defense. You would be able, there would be no non-combatants injured. You wouldn't be you wouldn't be causing undue suffering even to the combatants. You wouldn't be tainting the environment for millennia to come. You wouldn't be polluting or, or causing damage to a nearby a neutral state, for example. We they're very idiosyncratic circumstances, but in principle, you have to say it could happen, right? There could be cases where these deontic constraints would not prevent you from using a nuclear weapon. But as a matter of practical reality, I think we have to also be honest with ourselves and admit that with these, even with these principles, most cases are not going to be these kinds of unorthodox cases. So we have to operate at the very least on the assumption that most times when we're considering, when a state considers utilizing nuclear weapons in self-defense, that it's prima facie going to be impermissible on legal grounds and, and on moral grounds as well. So I think that is the, the only real, I think that's the most plausible conclusion to come to at the moment in the face of the, the current principles that actually apply in the world and what we know about nuclear weapons. So one of the, the reasons given for Hiroshima was to end a war very quickly. And it mm. seems like that's not really taken into account. In other words, it's a separate kind of consideration. It could be that you have a war of attrition that goes on for decades as each side shoots at the other one. You can avoid some of the sort of negative externalities that you've mentioned, but you're always going to have some civilian deaths that happen through conventional weapons. But the advantage of nuclear weapons, especially if the one side has and the other one doesn't, is it ends the conflict. In other words, you go, I just bombed 
this place. There's the further threat that I'm going to bomb wherever else you live. So you want to cut it out. And the war is over. And so you can save a lot of lives. And it should make Jason very happy on a kind of calculation yeah. level yeah. about how many lives you could save. Um, well, it was precisely those consequentialist considerations that I think many um, people in the upper echelons of the American high command would have used to justify their uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, they. I mean, anybody who's even has a, a knowledge of a, a cursory knowledge of the war in the Pacific knows that battles for Guadalcanal and Peleliu and Iwo Jima and all of those were very bloody, gruesome battles where a lot of Americans lost their lives. And the closer it got to the Japanese homeland, the more entrenched the enemy, the Japanese combatants became, right? And they also had a political ideology that was very Spartan-like and very stoic and very belligerent and designed to extract the most amount of blood from the American, what they considered to be the American aggressors. So it, it was that was precisely the justification that was used by the American high command to drop those bombs, to break the will of the Japanese population and their own high command, and to prevent that loss of American lives taking, which would have, which we, I think we can all agree would have happened had they been forced to do something like a landing, of, uh, a land invasion of, of the Jap of mainland Japan. And that was in the projections, I think, were, were astronomical with the loss of life. So those consequentialist considerations were definitely brought to bear. It just begs the question, though, to many people's ears about whether those are the sorts of considerations that justified the images that you saw out coming out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, and for people who, who do tend towards the consequentialist side, I think it behooves them to read a book like Jonathan Shell's book, the fate of the earth. I don't know if you guys have read it, but I would highly recommend it because in that book, Jonathan Shell describes the horrific consequences of nuclear war in the most beautiful but grisly terms. And he draws on real life descriptions from people who saw Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people who, who were fortunate enough to survive it and what they saw. And I think for many people, those consequentialist considerations just don't cut the mustard when it comes to when held up in comparison to innocent men, women and children who are non-combatants, who didn't, who were not part of hostilities and um, being burnt alive and dying of radiation poisoning afterwards. It's very difficult to do that consequentialist calculus. At least I find it hard in those circumstances to do the calculus. And I don't think, and I don't mean it just hard from a moral, from an emotional perspective. I actually, I find it in some sense morally opprobrious to do that sort of calculus in those circumstances. And I think many people share that moral intuition. And this is why it's such a huge debate. And this goes far beyond uh, use of nuclear weapons, but why it quite makes the debate between consequentialists and deontologists very difficult because there are very different and strong moral modes moral intuitions motivating the position. I mean, I, I think this is a fascinating debate. And yeah, I'm still not swayed, but but I do understand your position. And, and there's still some more jabs I want to throw in there. But I want to ask a different sort of question. Yes. There's the problem of self-defense I alluded to earlier is not just a state problem, it's also an individual problem. Yes. And there's certain camps like libertarians who say there should be no gun control, right? So you should be allowed to keep any gun for self-defense. And one of the questions is, should you be allowed to keep a nuke for self-defense? <laughs> Why can't I keep a nuke in my garage? Yeah, in your back in your backyard, yeah. Why yeah. not? And it, the question I have is, will the answer to that question be different from the answer to the state question, keeping a nuke in its backyard? Because essentially it seems very similar, right? In, in the two cases, you might have different presiding bodies involved, but other than that, it seems like all the negative consequences are going to be similar, right? Yeah. So you're going to have all the fallout and you're going to have, yeah. you're going to have yeah. mistakes that happen and people that press the button incorrectly and in both cases. What you're really asking is, am I entitled to take the interpersonal level? Am I entitled to use any and all means to defend myself? That's really the question. So even if we assume I have a right to self-defense, can I use any and all means to exercise that right? And I think most people would say, no, you don't. We don't have, we're not just given, you have a right to defend yourself, but you can't use any and all means to defend yourself. 
if those are completely and utterly dis disproportionate and if the effect of using your preferred mode of defense is going to, for example, cause widespread pandemonium. So in other words, if I'm going to defend myself with a machine gun and just spray bullets everywhere and, and it could land up killing civilians and people who are not down the streets, whatever, you're not going to think that is a proportionate instance of self-defense. We're going to think that that person has acted beyond the bounds of self-defense. And I think that when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons or the use of force more generally in, in war, that is what the principle of proportionality is trying to correct for. We're trying, to, we're trying to balance, in one sense, as we're doing in most legal and moral situations, we're trying to balance competing interests. We want to say, morally, it's important that you be able to defend yourself, but we also think that there are limits to how, how far we can go and what we can use. And it's very difficult, and I don't think there are clear-cut answers. So the problem is you're not the only player in this game. Yes. So there's other countries who are nuking up or your other neighbors are nuking up, or perhaps you've built a commune and you've decided I don't, I'm annexing myself from the United States or wherever you live. And you know that the U S army can just keep throwing resources at you. And you say, the only way to stop them is for me to have yeah. a nuke. I want a nuke pointed directly at the Capitol building. And yeah. that's what's going to stop these US Army hordes from invading my land. I'm giving you kind of an absurd case, right? Mm. But it seems exactly the same principle involved as the country who says, Holland, I have to nuke up because they're nuking up. With countries, you're generally, de generally dealing with more than one person. So in other words, what's being defended there is not just the life of one person in their little cabin in the woods. It's an entire, it's something much bigger. It's the lives of millions or hundreds of millions of people. It's a, a ways of life that we think are good in and of themselves. Maybe something like democratic government or something like a constitutional democratic government. And we think that these things are, are also worthy of protection. So I think there it is slightly different. And this is where these are the sorts of considerations that show that the, you can't just necessarily extrapolate from the, the individual case of self-defense to, to the, the statehood self-defense case without maybe losing something in that extrapolation. There are other considerations that may be brought to the fore and be relevant in one case, but not the other. So we've got to be careful when we do this extrapolation. The, the human mind is, is wants to look to that as to make that extrapolation. And it's a very natural move. And in many cases, we're, we're right to make that move. But we also got to remember, there are other considerations on the international proscenium when you're dealing with states that contain or are constituted by millions, if not hundreds of millions, and sometimes billions of individuals. So you've said something quite interesting, which is that the principles that govern international relations are moral principles. But then one of the things that you mentioned when it comes to signing the treaties, it seems to be strategic principles. So in other words, everyone who doesn't have a nuke says, we'd love to ban nuclear weapons because yes. we can't compete in this game. The guys who have a nuke say, no, I have a nuke. Why do I need to sign this treaty? I wouldn't want to disarm. So you wind up with this interesting move when you've got an asymmetry of weapons. But when you have a symmetry of weapons, then you've got this sense of saying, well, the Russians have nukes, the Americans have nukes. We either have detente, you know, mutually assured destruction. So if one of us unleashed, the other one would unleash and we would both die. And so maybe we have an incentive to try and de-escalate at the same sorts of levels. It would be better if none of us had a nuke. But what gets interesting, of course, is when you have rogue states. So you have someone who says, I don't mind if all my if all my citizens die. If they die in glorious battle, maybe that's okay. Well, so know? much the better. Yeah, so much yeah, the better. So much the better, exactly. I want to bring Armageddon on quicker. And especially if I get to take down the great Satan of America or whoever my enemy is, then to do it in, in the glory of nuclear war sounds good to me. So it's interesting how you try and operate these things. And I think that moral language is very useful in some context for persuading people but it does run out at some point in other words what's often operating is a sense of but do i have to do this given the power and if i don't have to do it well then i'm not disarming and uh, i'm going to win this conflict so why would i submit yes no doubt i mean that's but that just points to the fact that human beings motivations are not always moral motivations right i mean that's I mean, par for the course. I mean, we would love everybody to only be motivated in these when discussing, you know, things like of, of existential import, like the use of nuclear weapons. We would love them to be motivated solely by the moral considerations, right? But they're often motivated by many other things that we wouldn't at least 
most people would not consider to be moral considerations. Stature on the international proscenium, the use of power, the ability to engage more effectively in real politique, to extract resources from other people and threats of harm to them. I mean, there's any number of non-moral and unethical motivations that may be motivating any of these countries. But I think the interesting question is, ought they to be motivated by those sorts of things? And I think most people would say, if we're thinking morally, the answer is no, they shouldn't be motivated by those sorts of things. They should be motivated by what is in fact moral to do in any given circumstance. And there's, it's, I think it's, obviously we have to take these amoral motivations into account, but there are also moral motivations. If you look at the history since the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, nobody has used a nuclear weapon in any sort of combat situation, right? For starters. There have been any number of treaties which are designed to achieve nuclear disarmament. There are, we've, there are treaties to prevent nuclear testing. There are treaties that are designed to create nuclear weapon-free zones. There's a patchwork of treaties that, that create nuclear weapon-free zones. And now we see, coming into effect more recently, we see treaties that are, giving, are at least trying to give effect to a plenary prohibition against the use of nuclear weapons in any and all circumstances. So. I think that, yes, there are motivations on behalf of these uh, state actors that are immoral and are motivated by non-moral considerations, but I don't think that tells the entire story. I think people also do genuinely realize and genuinely appreciate the, the cataclysmic effects of these weapons and what a moral and ethical disaster it would be if we did use them and if we ever used them in a way that ultimately led to the extinction of the human species. Because that's, that is what is so unbelievably scary about these weapons, is that their use seems to unleash a entropic and chaotic genie from a bottle that can't be plugged back. And that's the concern, that, it could, that even one use of these weapons could unleash something that we as a human species are not prepared for, which is our own extinction. And I think that would be something of um, great moral import, and it would be a tragedy of untold moral proportions if we destroyed ourselves through the use of nuclear weapons. And I think there are many states and people who do appreciate that and think that is a morally salient consideration. So one of the devices that I've liked to bring the, the moral considerations to the fore is instead of having someone walking around with this football, instead what you do is you implant a chip in that person's heart and that the only way to get out the code is to take out a dagger to get the code. And this was, a, okay. this was an actual suggestion. And the response from the president was to recoil, to say, but that would be a horrendous thing to do. You'd be killing a human being. <laughs> no one would ever do it. And they said, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The way it should work is it's not just one person whose chest you have to chop into. It might be all your advisors or maybe your yeah. whole town that each yeah. have a little bit of the, the, the football yeah. key. Or in fact, and we can amp it up even more. It's embedded in the chest of the person you love most in the world. 